Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes and Elias Chapellis from Show Me Institute. David, next week, Missouri has a special election. What should people know? Well, it's going to be an interesting day. It's a Tuesday, the first Tuesday in August. Will be a special election in certain parts of Missouri. It's a the August odd year election day is a very little used election day, and that's a good thing. We want our elections more often to be on wide, widely known and widely participated in election dates. But be that as it may, we are where we are. And in St. Louis County, we have a number of special elections. Uh, the community college district has a modest eight cent per hundred dollar tax increase. For the, to support the community college district. Clayton has a still modest but slightly higher $0.18 cent per $100 general property tax increase. Frontenac has a walloping tax increase that varies based on the type of property, but let's just say it's, it's a little more than doubling your residential tax rate and it's tripling the commercial tax rate. And I'll get into all three of these in a second a little more specifically. And finally, in Webster Groves, we have a very interesting referendum on a zoning change that was passed by the city council several months ago. The zoning change is allowing greater use of duplex housing in certain residentially zoned areas in Webster Groves, and some opponents on that have put that on, on the ballot on the election day as well. Outside of St. Louis, the main election, the main one I'm aware of at least, and I try to follow this stuff pretty closely, is in Camden County, the heart of the Lake of the Ozark area, where they're voting on a sales tax to support the sheriff's department. The sheriff there wants to hire new officers and give existing officers a pay raise to reduce turnover. They've had several high-profile shootings and criminal events in the Lake of the Ozark region in the past month, so that's, uh, f that's a terrible thing, but it, it might have been good for his tax increase vote, uh, bringing attention to the matter of crime in the Ozarks. And it'll be interesting to see what the, the people in that normally pretty conservative part of the state, uh, if they'll vote for, for the tax increase. And those are, those are the main ones I'm aware of and happy to go into any more detail on whichever ones you feel deserve it. And has Frontenac cited a cause uh, for their tax increase, something that would, the tax increase would go towards? Well, they, they, they've cited their cause, which is understandable. Like, that's probably the only thing I agree with Frontenac on, on this year, is that the sales tax decline they saw from Plaza Frontenac and other stores last year in the pandemic was dramatic. I have no doubt that it was, uh, and that they need this property tax increase to offset that. I would say uh, my response would be several fold. One is that I was at Plaza Frontenac a few weeks ago, and it had a pretty good crowd at it, so that's certainly recovering substantially. Uh, what's more, we know they're getting a substantial amount of funding from the 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 CARES Act and the stimulus fund. Frontenac's getting about a million dollars from the federal government in stimulus funding. Um, we have coming online, slowly but surely, additional funding from municipalities from for roads and from online sales taxes, which are being expanded in, in the state. And the final thing was if they were proposing a reasonable property tax increase, a level of like Clayton and the community college are doing, I think I'd be much more supportive of this. But they are... They are substantially raising this, this rate. For the if you have a million-dollar home in Frontenac, which is very normal, and that's not out of the ordinary for Frontenac at all, then I mean, you're going to see well over a $1,000 property tax increase for your house. And if you're a business owner with the tripling of that property tax rate, you're just going to get hammered. The Frontenac Hilton, 
which as I said in my op-ed on it, which just spent a year without any guests, is going to see a $40,000 property tax increase as part of this vote if it passes. And I think that's I think that's unconscionable to be hammering your your commercial your struggling commercial sector like like this when you could if you were thinking long term and bigger picture with all these other funds that are coming online and the economy improving you could have a much uh, I think you could make do with a much smaller tax increase in Frontenac. And lastly, what's the zoning change being put before the voters of Webster? It's a very interesting issue. So the the Webster Grove City Council passed. Uh, a zoning change authorizing duplex housing in m- not all single-family home parts of Webster Groves, but many. And and a lot of people are concerned about that. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with duplex housing, and I don't have any natural opposition to liberalizing of, of zoning codes in Missouri. So I, if you go in and want to say, I like this change, I think we should have greater housing options and the ability for private developers, private homeowners to maybe build more duplex housing in Webster Groves. If you think that's a good thing, that's a reasonable position to me. And then you would vote, you vote for the duplex housing by voting no on the referendum, which is the confusing part. And if you don't like the plan because you've invested a lot of money in your community and you like single family residential zoning, as many, many suburbanites do, and you want to maintain that, you vote no on it. So actually you vote yes on the referendum to vote no against the the zoning chain. So there'll be some confusion there. I think this really comes down to much more than just this one small zoning change, though. I mean, this relates to the fact that there are people in Webster Groves, and I've spoken to several of them, who are concerned about this being the first step towards new members of the city council trying to radically change Webster Groves. And not just by allowing more duplexes here, but to do an enormous new tax increment financing subsidized development near Old Webster, to increase the ability to put apartment buildings and multifamily housing in commercial parts of Webster. And let me be clear, I've got nothing against apartment buildings in commercial parts of a city. I live in University City. We have lots of that. But if the people who don't Webster don't want that for their community, I understand that. And a lot of them are also concerned related to the law passed in Webster Groves about two years ago with a rare and I think bad law that says if you're a landlord and you try to rent your property out, you are forced to accept Section 8 housing vouchers if somebody applies to you and wants to rent your property. So that's basically mandating that you participate in a welfare program, even if you have no desire to participate in that welfare program. And let me be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Section 8 housing program per se, and the federal government does not require landlords to accept the federal government's own vouchers. So this is Webster Groves, uh, one of only three cities in Missouri that requires this, demanding this. And all these things taken together, I think, have a lot of resident Webster Groves residents concerned about the long-term view of their city. And I think the vote next week is going to be very, very interesting. Before we move on to our next main topic, you reminded me of a subtopic that I want to touch on, and we didn't talk about this before. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Your vote, no, if you want it, yes. If you don't want it, reminds me of uh, several years ago when I was living in Columbia and there was the great uh, trash roll cart vote. And that was the same way. You had an update recently on the Columbia trash bag uh, drama that was going on. Well, the situation would be funny if it wasn't so 
sad. I guess when I talk about it with Gary Nolan on the show, laughing at it, it's the only the only way to handle the situation. So Columbia, as a, instead of just doing trash the normal way, Columbia has decided to reinvent how cities do trash pickup, and it is not it is not succeeding. They've they've they don't allow residents to just go out and purchase their own trash bags at a store like everybody has for. For, I don't want to say forever, because at one point in history, we didn't have trash bags. But for a long time, you just go buy your trash bag. Well, you can't, God forbid you do that in Columbia anymore. They've dictated their own trash bags, limited your supply of them. If you, if you say, have a large family and do more trash, cause more trash, you have to buy trash bags only from the city. And the worst thing that came out is that apparently they're terrible trash bags. They easily rip. They're, they're tearing all over the place in Columbia. The city has admitted this, that there's been a lot of bad batches that they've been sending to people. So it's a great example of basically socialism failing everywhere, where the Soviet Union creates all these beautiful new grocery stores. Oh, but there's, there's no goods on the store shelves because nobody can get goods to market in a, in a system like that. So that's what Columbia has basically done, is they've mandated, they've totally taken over the every way that trash is involved with Columbia, and they can't even get people decent trash bags to start with. They just need to scrap this entire program and go back. And they need to reconsider this unfortunately voter-approved initiative against roll carts. I don't. I, I can't imagine for the life of me why anybody has a problem with roll carts. Just go to a system where you give everybody a roll cart, they do their own trash, they bring it to the street once a week, and then you outsource to a private company to collect the trash once a week, and maybe you do a little bit more for recycling. But they're overcomplicating a simple issue with pre- predictably government-managed disastrous results. Zach, do you remember what the opposition was to the roll carts? I remember living there, and I, whenever I moved to Columbia... The trash situation was just absurd to me. Like I, I lived on a street close to campus and everyone in the neighborhood just fills up their trash bags. And on Tuesday mornings, we take them up to the end of the street and just have a big pile of trash just sitting by the street waiting till it gets picked up. And then I finally thought we were going to get rid of it and get, you know, trash cans and uh, <laughs> voters, you know, they turned it down pretty resoundingly, I thought. So I, I don't know exactly what what's driving it, but I still think it's one of the craziest trash shit situations I've ever been around. Yeah, I, I do not remember uh, there being a p- persuasive argument from the <laughs> opposition side, but I do know that David is going to be a marked man uh, next time he sets foot in Columbia because the anti-roll cart crowd um, they they were they were set in their ways. They they definitely were not going to be moved on the issue. You know, stand for something or fall for anything, but whatever you do, just don't have a trash can that has wheels on it. Right, stand for something, fall for anything, or get rolled to the curb once a week for trash. <laughs> All right, Elias. Two weeks ago, now it's been uh, from the Medicaid expansion decision. That yeah. was uh, last week. Well, I know time flies. Time flies when you're expanding government programs. So last week, the Missouri Supreme Court overturned the decision of a lower Cole County court and said, Missouri, tell you what, we're going to do this Medicaid expansion thing. So what does that mean for implementation? Does it look like implementation is going to happen this year? What is the, how long of a runway does the government need to expand this massive program? What, what do you think the rest of 2021 looks like for, for Medicaid? Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with a little bit of background because there's a ton here. So the uh, court in Jefferson City, Cole County, said that 
you know, Medicaid expansion, the initiative that voters approved last August, was unconstitutional because it didn't come with a way to pay for it. And what the legislature found out this year is they started looking at um, implementing the program was that it was going to cost upwards of $2 billion a year. The state's uh, share of that, um, a little less than $200 million. And so when the court said, well, first, the legislature did not appropriate funding or did not include funding for Medicaid expansion in the budget, which started the court process. And the judge said in Jefferson City that it was not constitutional. The initiative was not constitutional because it didn't have a way to come up with that $200 million. So then that brings us to last week where the uh, Missouri Supreme Court says, well, it doesn't explicitly say the legislature has to fund it, but it does say that the state needs to let people enroll. And so what we have now is we have a situation where the state's Medicaid uh, agency is supposed to be pulling out all the stops to allow Missourians eligible for Medicaid expansion to enroll as soon as possible. It's a little hard to tell how quick that will be because uh, a lot of papers and agreements have to be filed with the federal government because there is a different funding arrangement for Medicaid expansion than traditional Medicaid. But um, basically, as soon as possible, I would assume it shouldn't take too long. I mean, I, I think Medicaid expansion will be starting, or people will at least be able to enroll um, within 2021. And then it turns to the issue of, well, how does the state pay for it? And so, as I said, it's going to cost roughly $2 billion a year. Uh, the state's current budget doesn't include any money for it. And the reason the Supreme Court said it the uh, expansion could happen is because the legislature doesn't have to fund it. And so we're at this point where, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars of costs are going to be coming in. The state is going to be on the hook to pay for them. Now the court says, you know, they don't necessarily have to pay for them, but because Missouri has a Medicaid program, those funds, if Missouri doesn't want to default on these payments, will be coming from the rest of the Medicaid program. And so that means the current population, um, you know, the elderly, the disabled, uh, pregnant women, uh, their funding that was specifically set aside for them in this year's budget will be going towards this expansion population. And what that means is within a few months, that money will be running out because there will just be uh, probably 200 plus thousand more people on the program. And so the money that was supposed to, you know, be covering these other people will be running out, and the legislature will have to decide what to do from there. Can we use stimulus money? Uh, I don't think so. There, There is some stimulus money that goes towards Medicaid, but that has been coming to Missouri uh, in the way of increased federal matching. So normally, uh, Missouri's Medicaid program is uh, the funding relationship is that the state pays roughly $0.35 cents in the federal government the federal government throws in 65. And with the uh, stimulus funds, the federal government has been increasing their 65 cent share up to uh, 70 or 75, depending on who the um, enrollee is. And as I mentioned before, with Medicaid expansion, that is a higher percentage. And the stimulus funds do offer an additional incentive for states that roll out Medicaid expansion. So there's a lot of there's a lot of money up in the air. We're not exactly sure where it's going to fall, but the pot of money that 
is sitting in Jeff City right now cannot be used to cover the state's part of Medicaid expansion, at least not yet. And are we done with the court process? Is it, could there be another reversal here from a diff- from an appeal or something? Or are, is this is it now just the law of the land and you just have to figure out a way to pay for it? Well, a little disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, so it's hard to uh, know for sure. But I think, I think the way the Supreme Court, uh, you know, handed down this decision is essentially saying the legislature does not have to fund this, and that's why it can stand. So it's essentially up to the legislature if they would like to, you know, try not to fund this thing and see what happens. I I think it'll go to court that way. I think there are certainly federal court implications if Missouri agrees to cover certain people on Medicaid and then decides not to pay for them. I don't think, uh, you know, as a non-lawyer, I don't think that will hold up as well if Missouri uh, allows people to enroll in Medicaid and receive services and then says they're not going to pay the bill. I don't think that holds up very well for Missouri. But more broadly, I think that there will be more legal challenges just surrounding what the Supreme Court's decision uh, means for other constitutional amendments. Uh, Throughout history, we've essentially had the, Missouri's history, we've essentially had the system where if you want to amend Missouri's constitution with something that will cost money, you need to put it on the ballot with something that will pay for it. And this would essentially be a constitutionally protected source of revenue. Well, Medicaid expansion didn't do that. And the Supreme Court is essentially saying that you don't need it as long as the initiative doesn't specifically tell the legislature uh, that they have to appropriate money in this place. You can pass whatever you want and let let the chips fall where they may. So I think going forward with Missouri's uh, leaning into this whole legislation by constitutional amendment, I think we're going to see more court cases around what needs to be done for these uh, amendments to be validly enacted. And the last question before we move on to our next topic, you, along with uh, Corinna Beyer, just published a paper up at showmeinstitute.org about how unprepared Missouri is for the next economic downturn, how um, we need to have a more resilient revenue system for the next uh, economic downturn. What does expanding a program that's 40% of the state budget, what does that do to, to that situation. I can't imagine it helps. How much in your estimation does it hurt? Well, like you said, it definitely can't be good. So you have the situation every recession where revenues go down and you will have some expenditures that go up. More people can enroll in Medicaid. More people go on unemployment, other state services. And so Missouri already ranked pretty poorly in the estimates for how much uh expenditures would go up during a recession. And as we've seen over the last year and a half or so, Missouri's Medicaid enrollment has jumped by over 200,000 people. And so you're talking about a Medicaid program now that, you know, prior to 2020 was below 900,000 people were enrolled in Missouri's Medicaid program. Today, we're almost at 1.1 million And so that is recession driving this thing. And then you're talking about Medicaid expansion, adding two to 300,000 more people. And so even if the federal government pays a higher share of these new enrollees costs, that's still a significant cost at a time that the state is receiving fewer tax revenues. And so I don't know 
how to exactly estimate, you know, how much worse Missouri will be prepared for a recession, but it has to be, it has to be worse. And it's definitely something that I'm worried about going forward. David, there's a job opening in the city of Lake Ozark for city administrator. Um, they're trying to fill it. How's it going? It's, it's good. Interestingly is the nicest way to, to put it. This has become quite the brouhaha in Lake Ozark, which is the city of about 5,000 people in a, the heart of, of Camden County. But, you know, as the old boxing saying would go, I think Lake Ozark punches above its weight when it comes to importance. It's, it's the heart of, you know, one of the Midwest's top tourist hubs, uh, the, the famous Lake of the Ozark area, which has received plenty of national press on for, for entertainment gatherings during the pandemic, is, to put it one way. Certainly well known because of the the TV show of the of the same name, and and uh, just many Missourians, probably most Missourians, have been to the Lake of the Ozarks. I certainly love going there. So so Lake Ozark wants a new city administrator, and there is quite the fight on one hand between the mayor who wants to conduct a search for the new city administrator. And the city council, uh, perhaps the entire city council, certainly a majority of the city council, who simply want to promote the current deputy city administrator to the position and say, sort of wash their hands of it and say, we'll be done. And while there's plenty of, there's plenty of public policy questions where there's good arguments on both sides, I don't see this as one of those. The, the mayor is right in this case. The new mayor, Dennis Newberry, is correct. Lake, of the o- Lake Ozark is an important city in the state and the city administrator of that there's towns can have a city administrator they can have a city manager there are they're not the same thing there are slight differences between the two lake lake ozark has a city administrator form of government and the job of the mayor and the city council to pick that city administrator well it's one of the most important decisions they will make and if a city city administrator city managers can stay at some cities for quite some time so it's a hugely important decision uh, and it is, it is imperative that, that the city leadership conduct a regional or even nationwide search to find that the city of Ferguson, which some people in America might have heard of, the city of Ferguson, uh, they just hired a new city administrator or a new city manager. And it's in the Post-Dispatch today, or I think yesterday, actually. And they conducted a nationwide search for that job. And I would say that the Lake Ozark job is important enough that they too should conduct a nationwide search, but if not nationwide, at least regional. There are easy ways to do this. You can. There are city management associations, Missouri Municipal League, Missouri Association of Counties. There are all sorts of entities that you can publish this search resume request, application request, recruiting ads in that don't cost very much money and will get you will be well targeted to the people you want to bring it its, its attention to. So, and as for the current deputy city administrator and economic development coordinator, who the city council wants to promote, well, he's perfectly welcome and should be encouraged to apply for the city administrator job. And if he stands out as a part of this whole process, well, more power to him to then eventually get the job. We went through something like this in a, in a pre, prior job for me. It wasn't a job. It was a volunteer position when I was on the University City Library Board. And, you know, that's a library district for 35,000 people. And we had, I was president of the board the year that our longtime library director retired. And she wanted, everybody loved our deputy library director at that time. 
But, you know, we felt a responsibility as members of the board to conduct a search and not just promote Patrick. Uh, the, that was the deputy library director. So we hired a, a executive search company that had a specialty in libraries and sort of taxing districts like that. And we went through a regional process, got a number of applicants, interviewed them. It was a lot of work. And over the course of that process, it became clear that the deputy direct, library director that we all like so much, that he indeed was comparatively very highly qualified for this position. So we eventually, at near, as the search came to an end, we decided to just to do what, what, what some people had wanted to do from the beginning but didn't feel that we could just go ahead and do without being more sure, and we promoted the assistant director to the position where he's still at, where he still does a wonderful job for the U-City Library. Lake Ozark needs to do the same thing. Lake Ozark is an important place. This is a very important job, and the mayor is a thousand percent right that they need to be use. They need to be spending a little bit of tax dollars to get this job done, filled by the right person for the community. And if I was a voter, taxpayer, or citizen of Lake Ozark, I'd be demanding it. All right, wrapping up, Elias. What are you looking forward to the next week? Uh, well, this week the uh, Missouri Housing Development Commission. Uh, started holding hearings for the next year's uh, what they call the qualified allocation plan. So they're coming together and deciding how they should be giving out the low-income housing tax credits next year. And so with all the federal stimulus funds and other uh, reforms that were made to the program last year, I'm looking to see what uh, kind of momentum we have going forward here. Are there going to be continued improvements? Are, you know, are they going to try to make the program a little bit more effective? And hopefully in the next uh, week or so, we'll have a better idea. David? In Kansas City right now, there's been apparently a, a long-term behind-the-scenes effort that just became public recently. Not They didn't release a press release about it, but it was in the minutes of some, some Economic Development Council board, meet, board agendas where there's an effort behind the scenes to expand the Enhanced Enterprise Zone tax incentives in Kansas City to include residential to include housing developments which they've never been included in in Kansas City nor in uh, the rest of Missouri to the best of my knowledge enhanced enterprise zones which I wrote a, a study of uh, enterprise zones and enhanced enterprise zones for show me Institute which is available at showmeinstitute.org I wrote a study on this seven eight years ago and I'm not a fan of the program generally speaking but it has always been understood that enterprise zones and enhanced enterprise zones are a tax incentive based on business development and most importantly job creation and never been used for housing. So to see uh, the, the developers and their lawyers and their urban planners and their financiers launching an effort to expand the use of EEZ credits and incentives to housing is incredibly disappointing but not surprising. It's as you see a few Kansas City local elected officials trying to push back and reduce the amount of tax incentives given out. We've seen this in St. Louis as well. Very modest steps to sort of make slight reductions in the use of tax subsidies in their cities and the response by the development community, which, you know, lives and die, not all of them, some of them, many of them, you know, live and die based on tax subsidies and tax incentives, that they're now going to do an end around to try and get a totally new way to get enhanced enterprise zone credits used for housing developments. Well, it's, it's again, not, not surprising, but totally unfortunate. And I hope Kansas City does not agree to this at all, because it would be a, a terrible precedent, a terrible decision. 
All right, David Stokes, Elias Chappellis, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org.